This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the B Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response, an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. Teal Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 41. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 41 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihatton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihatton. Good afternoon, Randy. Hi, Lynn. So this afternoon, we're talking with Julie Adams. Uh, Julie is on the West Coast in California. And Julie, as a National Board Certified Teacher and Educator of the Year, is an internationally respected and highly sought-after educational consultant who specializes in 21st century critical thinking, neuroscience, content area literacy, and instructional leadership. So looking forward to hearing what she has to say about the the adolescent brain, as our listeners know, I have a 13-year-old, and she shared with us prior to the conversation uh, that boys' adolescent brains are driven by risk. So interesting to hear that. <laughs> Julie trains and coaches yeah. teachers and administrators in best instructional practices that increase student competence, confidence, and achievement. Her passion and humor make her a featured speaker at conferences around the world. Her books include Game Changers, Seven Instructional Practices That Catapult Student Achievement, Teaching Academic Vocabulary Effectively, and PDP Cornell Notes, A Systematic Strategy to Aid Comprehension. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you, Lynn and Randy. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here, and we're looking forward to talking about your book, Game Changers. So to start off the conversation, let's ask uh, a beautiful question. So what is the beautiful question, what Warren Berger calls an ambitious and actionable question, behind your work in Game Changers? Well, Game Changers was really the result of a conversation that I had with a brand new teacher, a first year teacher. And when I asked him how his year was going, he made the comment to me that it's going very well. Uh, after all, effective teaching is not rocket science. 
And, and then when I went into his classroom to observe, his classroom was uh, struggling in all aspects. He ended up kicking out four students. Um, he struggled with the content. He struggled with management. He struggled with skills. And afterward, when I asked him again how his year was going, he revealed, you know, it's a struggle. I am not prepared to meet the demands, and I just didn't want you to know. And so when I asked him again about effective teaching not being rocket science, um, we both came to the conclusion of effective teaching is not rocket science. It's actually far more complicated than that. <laughs> and he, he, he asked, you know, can you, he said, I have a, a shelves full of textbooks about educational theory, but I'm really not sure how to put it into practice in the classroom. So can you give me some insight in, um, you know, quickly in terms of best practices for strategies and um, emotional connection with kids? And then that's what sparked the book Game Changers. It's really um, a, a manual, if you will. And so the beautiful question behind Game Changers is how can I blend neuroscience, content, creativity, and critical thinking skills into my instruction to promote student success? That's a really interesting backstory behind behind the book, mm. and and I think the uh, the idea that it's um, very accessible to practitioners and really uh, can be used by practitioners to help to improve practice, I think makes it a really valuable resource. So, looking forward to chatting about some specific things in the book Game Changers. So, your first game changer is understanding how the the young brain collects, processes, and understands stimuli and information. Talk to us about some of the fascinating facts based in neuroscience that we should understand as teachers working with these students every day. Well, many studies have shown that student achievement is directly related to teacher effectiveness. And we know that the young brain is highly influenced by environment. In fact, um, the impact for student success is determined far more by environment than it is by genetics. And that's good news for us because it means what we do as educators really makes a difference. And so in many circumstances, when kids come to us with, okay. we can address those deficiencies in class and overcome them. So just about 12, 13 years ago, neuroscientists thought the brain was fully developed by the age of 12. And we know 12-year-olds, and I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that their <laughs> brains are not fully developed. And, um, and so in the past decade, neuroscientists have discovered far more about the young brain than ever before. So, for example, the brain develops from the stem forward. And the last part of the brain to develop is called the prefrontal cortex. And it's the region that's right behind the forehead. And the prefrontal cortex is otherwise known as the executive functioning center of the brain. It is believed that all areas of the brain start to really activate and work together in a female about 20 or 21 years old and in a male as late as 24, 25 or 26. Now, this poses major issues for us as parents and educators because when the prefrontal cortex is not firing on all cylinders, if you will, and not fully connected synactically, we know that a child will struggle with understanding cause and effect. So when you ask a child who has just made a bad choice, hey, Johnny, why'd you make that bad choice? What does Johnny always say? I don't know. And he shrugs his shoulders. And he really is giving you a lot of insight into the lack of prefrontal cortex development. 
We also know that the PFC is responsible for emotional regulation, organizational skills, impulse control, and overall critical thinking. So basically everything that we need a child to succeed to have neurologically in the way that our educational system is currently set up, he really does not have a lot of access to until much later. So we put expectations on the young brain that we have for the mature brain, and many times we're setting a child up for failure. So it's very important for us to understand that because of the lack of prefrontal cortex development, the child responds to situations much differently than what we would anticipate. And many times we turn misdemeanors into felonies simply because we as parents and educators don't understand the child is not yet equipped with the skill set. So a lot of things to think about here, for example, um, can we accelerate development in the prefrontal cortex? Neuroscientists say absolutely. A couple things that we can do to accelerate the executive functioning center of the brain, for example, is explicitly teach cause and effect in the classroom and in the home. So ask the child, what would happen if? Or if you did this, what are all the positive things that could happen? And what are all the negative things that could happen? You can use cause and effect graphic organizers in the classroom. Also, helping the child to identify his emotions. Many times kids are upset and they're not even sure what emotion it is that they're feeling. They might be hungry or tired or stressed or angry. So one, helping them to identify their emotions and then teaching them a productive way in managing those emotions. Also teaching organizational skills and impulse control, letting a child know it's perfectly okay to be ticked off, but it's not okay to punch a hole in the wall. So next time you're feeling really stressed or upset, try these two or three things instead. And so that those skills can be explicitly taught by educators and parents. And it's important for us to have insight into the idea and not assume aside that a child should have this skill set because they're of a certain age or in a certain grade, because we know that research does not support that. We also know that the child overuses the amygdala. And so some people say, so if, if a child is not using his prefrontal cortex, what does he use instead? And that's a great, que great question. He uses his amygdala, usually 30 to 70% more than a mature brain does. And the amygdala is the extreme emotional processing center of the brain. It's responsible for survival mode, otherwise known as fight, flight, or freeze. And many people want to know, why is the amygdala so active? Well, the amygdala is very active in the young brain, many times because a child feels as if he has no control over his environment. And so a couple things that we can do is provide choice in the classroom and also in the home. Do you want eggs for breakfast or do you want cereal? For this unit on um, the Civil War, would you like to take a 50-question multiple-choice test? Would you like to write an, an essay answering this prompt? Or would you like to create a multimedia presentation addressing these six content standards that you have learned throughout this unit? So anytime we can give choice to a child that will decrease his level of stress, decrease his desire to operate in survival mode and decrease his cortisol levels, which of course um, are the stress chemical in the body that hampers learning.
I think this idea of choice is definitely something that we're connecting to. So we've gone through this whole year now. We've been talking to all sorts of uh, experts in the field and uh, this idea of moving our system so that our students do have more choice. And now you're making this neurological connection too for us, uh, the neuroscience, the research. Um, so that's, that's really helpful. Uh, oftentimes we hear from our students that question of, why do I need to learn this? What's the point of it? So in Game Changer 3, I believe you suggest that we focus on these things called essential questions. So tell us a little bit about what makes a good essential question and how we would use them to focus curiosity and creativity in our own students. That's a, that's a great question. And so first and foremost, learning is about relationships. First, the relationship between the teacher and the pupil is of utmost importance. And Dr. Rita Pearson mentions in her very famous TED Talk, kids don't learn from people they don't like. So it's important to foster a positive relationship. But then also relationships between old content and new content, between content standards and real world application, and between content and critical thinking skills. So learning is all about relationships. And so the essential question identifies a lot of information for the student. And students often have two essential questions when they come into a classroom. The first one is, hey, what are we doing today? And the second one is, why? And what does this have to do with me? So an essential question is usually part of the front-loading process. And the front-loading phase of a lesson is designed to teach three critical thinking skills. The first is activate prior knowledge. The second is formulate predictions. And the third is build vocabulary acquisition. So an essential question can promote clarity and curiosity and connection while activating prior knowledge, helping the child to form predictions, and introducing key vocabulary that can boost their acquisition. So ideally, a teacher can start a lesson with an essential question that is debatable and um, is open-ended. It's not going to be answered in a yes or no format. And it's going to force the child to make connections to larger content. And then the, the students can turn and talk and, and form predictions based on their prior knowledge as to how they would answer the essential question at the beginning of the lesson. And then those predictions can be shared Throughout the lesson, the teacher can reference the essential question again to focus the learners on what the task is at hand. And then at the end of the lesson, I encourage teachers to come back because learning is a cycle. So whatever you start with, it's always very important to end with in order to close the cycle and make the connection to the student. So have the students again get into groups and discuss based on what we learned today, now how would you answer the essential question? Is your answer now different than your original one was and why based on what you learned? Some people say an essential question should not have a definitive answer. Uh, I respectfully disagree. So, for example, can an essential question be something such as how do I solve linear equations? Sure. That has uh, two or three definable ways to answer that question. However, some people say, you know, an essential question should not be defined by a specific answer or should not be Googleable. And so either way, as long as the question is going to promote discussion and connection to larger learning and really focus the learner on what the purpose is, then I, I think whether it is um, 
definitively answerable or not is beneficial to the student. So as a person with a reading background, I'm making a lot of connections to what you're saying, because I know when we want to engage students with text, we need to engage with before, during, and after reading strategies. And making those same right. connections before before you read the essential question, developing schema and background knowledge, making some predictions while you're reading, clarifying your predictions and misconceptions, and as you finish reading, processing your some of your ideas. So really important strategies for engaging students. What are some ways that we inadvertently disengage our students and what can we do to ensure that we maintain that engagement throughout the learning process? Mm. Well, as I mentioned before, the number one way that we disengage students is one, we don't build positive relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And two, we talk too much. And so I have two <laughs> wonderful grandmothers and my, my one grandmother, she always says, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. We're supposed to listen twice as much as we speak. And I find that particularly valuable when working with students, because many times uh, in the home, um, communication will be one way, usually top down, get your homework done, clean your room, feed the dog, you know, those types of um, specific demands, um, just in terms of completing the tasks that have to be done throughout the day in the home. And many times um, the child is not engaged in two-way respectful conversation. And so to build positive relationship is one of the things that can be lacking when children are disengaged. And then um, second, when we speak too much throughout the lesson. And so I always encourage teachers I'm working with, try to share talking uh, with students 50%. So it's a 50-50 split. You'll, You'll speak half the time and then engage them in discussion half the time. But there are two types of engagement really for a teacher to focus on. And the first is academic engagement. And that is making the content relevant and thought-provoking and also developing critical thinking skills in addition to teaching the content. And then we have emotional engagement, of course, which is the connection to the teacher, um, the student-to-student connection, and then the student's connection to the content. And so we want to make sure and be enthusiastic about our lessons Um, engaging students in a variety of ways, whether it's through learning brain breaks, which are designed to be used every four to 10 minutes throughout a lesson. And those are really digestion and analytical and and critical thinking skill opportunities for students to engage with the content. And they can be something simple, such as turn and talk with your partner and retell first, then finally, what we just read. Or turn and talk with your group and form a prediction. What do you think is going to happen next based on what we just learned? Or summarize, answer the reporter's questions. Who, what, when, where, why, how based on what we just learned. Or make a connection to two facts from yesterday's lesson. And so anything like that is a learning brain break. It allows the the young brain to stop and make a connection with the content Because learning is really, it's similar to eating at a buffet, if you will. So when a child's in the classroom, just like when we're in the buffet, they they have a plate. And when you're at a buffet, you're proceeding through the buffet line and you're piling food onto your plate. And there comes a point when you put so much food on the plate that if you put anything else on it, food is going to start sliding off the plate and make a mess. Well, learning is very similar. The child has a plate 
that is accessible to knowledge. And once so much knowledge and information is piled onto that plate without providing an opportunity to sit down and eat and digest some of the food, no more information is going to be going onto that plate. And so giving the student an opportunity every four to 10 minutes to turn and talk, make a connection, make a prediction, retell, summarize, sketch a vision, a visual that comes to your mind that allows the child to eat and clear off the plate. And then he can go back into the lesson for another four to 10 minutes and gather more information. An energizing brain break is another way to engage kids in class. And those are really designed to be used every 10 to 20 minutes we know that numb buns equal lame brains. And so kids have to be moving around because as soon as a decrease <laughs> in oxygenated blood flow is going to the brain, learning is going to shut down. And so kids are designed to be vigorously active for two plus hours a day. Otherwise, they just don't have enough, enough oxygenated blood flow really to supply all the learning and retention that we're expecting of them. So every 10 or 20 minutes, get them up moving around. You can Google energizing brain breaks and come up with some wonderful ideas, but really just getting them up and moving around for 30 to 60 seconds every 10 to 20 minutes is very important. And that increases engagement, comprehension, and retention of content. So learning brain breaks every four to 10 minutes allows them an opportunity to connect and digest the information. Energizing brain breaks every 10 to 20 minutes allows them to get that oxygenated blood flow pumped up specifically to the hippocampus, which is responsible for that comprehension and retention of content. Other ways you can engage kids is through project-based learning, any type of choice activity, any type of discussion or supporting of a claim with evidence, a debate, if you will, very valuable in engaging the child in the classroom. So as leaders, one of the things that we've been focusing on this year in our classroom walkthroughs is this idea of engagement. So many of the things that you're uh, putting out here are things that we've been looking for and have seen on a wide range of you know different types of engagement. So again, as leaders, one of the things that we're always trying to do is build the capacity of our teachers to improve their practice, to be the best teachers they can be. So what suggestions do you have for our listeners who are mostly leaders uh, and want to develop their teachers into these game changers? Well, first, check out the book. It's um, the book Game Changers, Seven Instructional Practices That Catapult Student Achievement. It's less than 100 pages, and it really is designed to be a very user-friendly manual for both novices and veterans in how to blend neuroscience, creativity, critical thinking, and um, content skills. And so check out the book. Also model what it is to be a lead learner and always being willing to try new things. I, I have yet to teach a lesson that is perfect. I'm always thinking, how can I tweak that just to be a little bit more effective next time? Or, or, or how can I change this to allow a little bit more student engagement and discussion and debate? Um, also important to analyze students' academic and emotional needs and reflect on what I'm doing to meet those needs and what can I do to increase the opportunity to meet those needs. Could then consider peer and instructional coaching. Peer coaching is where teachers choose one or two colleagues to meet with throughout the year and observe each other's classrooms two or three times throughout the year. They are not operating as an expert. They're simply going in 
and collecting data in an area that um, the, the observed teacher is asking for data to be collected in. And then they just sit down and have a reflective conversation about the, the lesson and uh, how did you come to those choices or those decisions? Why did you use those strategies? Would you make any changes next time? Um, those types of reflective practices are very valuable in developing game-changing educators. And then finally, provide ongoing instruction in strategies and research and support and opportunities to watch each other teach and to engage in reflective discussion. We know that when teachers engage in reflective discussion about instruction, instruction improves. We also know that formal evaluations that are conducted by supervisors are not the best way to grow improvement. They are a necessary evil, but we know when teachers engage with other teachers and reflect on their practices, that's when instruction improves and that's how you grow game changers. And certainly reflecting on the peer coaching, we actually have a differentiated supervision model in our school district. And we understand that this is not really common across the country. Um, One of the supervision modes that teachers can choose is peer coaching. So they attend a training and they learn about um, the pre-conference and the observation and collection of data and then the post-conference and, you know, some of the questions that you've identified reflecting on the lesson or our guided questions there as well. So certainly for our listeners, if it's something you haven't seen before, checking out that um, as a supervision mode for teachers who qualify, it might be something worthwhile investigating, even if it's something less formal. Absolutely. I was recently reading an article that was talking about um, how teachers are, they are observed for less than 60 minutes per 64,000 minutes that they teach. And in any other profession, that really is unheard of when the stakes are high. And so we, we just want to provide as many opportunities for teachers to grow their practice by learning and sharing and reflecting with others. So certainly able to make a lot of connections and found the book very accessible. It's something that Randy and I are looking at using for one of our summer academy workshops for our teachers. Um, Great. What, what are you thinking about right now? What is on your horizon? What are the beautiful questions that you're focused on in your work? Well, uh, currently this week, I've been asked to write an article for AMLE um, based on a presentation that I gave at their conference last year, and it's titled The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Instructional Leaders. So really going through and taking a look at, you know, we know that instructional leadership and schools that have gone from good to great, they always have strong instructional leadership, both um, teacher-driven and administrative-driven. And so what are those habits that come up over and over again that really define effective instructional leadership? Do you really have to be a curriculum instruction expert to be an instructional leader? So those are the types of questions that I'm toying with this week as I'm working on this article for AMLE. That is fascinating and certainly something that we talk about a lot, Randy, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. She saw very- that smile on my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Look forward to that. Well, thank you so much to Julie for joining us. And uh, to learn more about Julie's work, we will link in our show notes Julie's books, which are available on Amazon, and also Julie's website, Affecting Teaching, EffectiveTeachingPD.com. You can check out Julie on Twitter, at Adams Teaching. 
Each episode, we leave you with, with a question to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's question, how will you support your teachers to become game changers? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season two, episode 41. We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes. Let us know your star rating and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Julie. Thanks, Julie. Thank you so much. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.